Hey everyone, welcome back to the Show Business Podcast. I'm your host, Denver Bailey. Today my guest is Ryan Schmidt. Ryan Schmidt is from the Bowen Schmidt Law Firm. I think today's conversation is a fascinating one where we peek behind the curtain and take a look at the music industry and the legalities of contracts and such that are behind that. Even if you're not a person that's into entertainment law, I think this podcast is one that you will absolutely enjoy. So without further ado, this is Ryan Schmidt. How do you become an entertainment lawyer? Like what was your journey to becoming an entertainment lawyer? So I was a musician, um, lifelong musician, wanted to be the like pop star. Um, Really started from like, I think I was five or six when I saw Remember the Goofy movie? Uh, yes. <laughs> and I watched, uh, I was watching it in Powerline. I wanted to be Powerline. I sang all his songs. It was okay. like, he was like a combo of like Prince and Michael Jackson. I was like, that guy is the man. You yeah. know, I was like, I want to be him. Yeah. So I would just like do mini concerts in my house and okay. got a guitar and started, started doing all that. In high school, got more serious with playing music, writing music, and put out my first uh, album when I was... 16, 17, mm-hmm. just, just kept, kept going for it. I really wanted to, uh, to learn as much about the music business as I possibly could. Cause my parents were like very, very from an early age to like, yeah, we believe in you. Like, that's great. But like, you should mm-hmm. always should like know the business part of this too. Right. So from being a high school, like want to be pop star to going to undergrad, I went to undergrad in Northeastern in Boston and did music business and that's really where I cut my teeth on music law principles, mm-hmm. copyrights, these all these horror stories of contracts and stuff like that. I got out of that and I said, that's great. I, I have a good foundation, but I am now ready to do the take the world by storm and do the touring musician. Thing. Yeah. <laughs> so right out of uh, right out of undergrad, I actually got invited to be on NBC's The Voice. Oh, wow. Yeah. So I did that um, season three. And that was all the original. There's, the, there's clips online of this? There's cl- clips online. Okay. It's, it's a very, it was a wonderful experience. And it was also um, just a pretty like humbling moment too. So I'll, I'll, I'll tell you the story about all this. When you see like reality TV shows, you think, mm-hmm. oh, you, they sat in line for two days outside of an arena and they waiting to get the call. They actually called me and they called many different musicians and they said, hey, we want you to be on this. They actively mm-hmm. recruit you to be on this, okay. on this show, which is, is cool. And when I was uh, going out there, I just graduated undergrad. I hadn't really done anything besides just be a student. And they said uh, they wanted my angle because you know how everybody has these like yeah. really like terrible, like heart wrenching stories they put right. on reality TV. They said, what's your story? <laughs> I'm just a kid that likes to play music. There wasn't a whole lot beyond that. They said, well, that's a terrible story. We need to get you a better story. And they said, well, if it wasn't music, what would it be? And I just graduated uh, music business school. And I said, I haven't really put too much thought into it beyond doing this music thing, but mm-hmm. perhaps I'd be a music lawyer. I said, that's it. You're the music lawyer kid. You know, you've already taken the LSAT. You, you, you don't want to go to law school, but if, if nobody turns around, like you're going to go to law school and you're going you're gonna to go ahead and do that. Mm. So I was actually like backstage, had the mic in hand. I'm like ready to go out there and sing my song that they picked for me, of course. And I'm, I'm on deck and they say, sorry, kid, teams have filled up. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, oh no. But like in the in that immediate moment, I was like heartbroken, right? Because I'd invested a good couple months at this point uh-huh. into into this show. There's like hair and makeup. You like live there for a uh, a month and you do like choreography and all this other stuff. And uh and I was like, wow, what am what am I gonna do now? But from that experience, that actually led me to move to Nashville. I eventually went to law school. So okay. it, uh, it all kind of came full circle. That's like the, the heart of the music industry, right? Absolutely. I was, I was coming from Boston, which was a wonderful music town. Mm-hmm. I, I just loved it so much, but I fe- couldn't help but think there's more opportunities in a town that is known for this thing. Right. You know, this was like, you know, when you think about music, you've got New York, 
LA, mm-hmm. Nashville, of course, Atlanta too, yeah. but I wasn't doing hip hop. So that wasn't quite my scene. So I moved to Nashville and it was a pretty eye-opening experience because once I moved there, I really wanted to focus on songwriting. And that's where all like mm-hmm. the best songwriters are. And unlike being in Boston where you, you're pretty well known and people like you and they think you're pretty good, you come to Nashville and talent is the common denominator. Everybody mm-hmm. is super good and everybody's coming from, they were the best from their hometown. And then they all kind of just congregate in this one place Absolutely. so everybody's the best everybody's so good but it but it like it challenges you to get better for sure yeah and now when you're in nashville are, are you still performing i was performing but i wasn't playing like the club the club shows the club shows especially in nashville you the competition to play shows is a lot harder than being the one acoustic singer songwriter in boston that they call okay. to to open up for somebody now they've got thousands of people they can call but what I did is I transitioned to the college uh performing market which was a good way of both performing and getting to see a lot of the country but also actually paid Mm -hmm. which was a nice benefit from some of these other gigs that I was doing when you were first getting into music you said you you did an album was this like releasing on a cd or like were you putting out it cassette tape or was this digital uh yeah, how, how mean, did you approach that because it changes so much over time it does so this was on a i remember it's on a cd and i did it did do it digitally but back then i think my first ep that i put out was in 2007 so okay. it wasn't as easy to put music on spotify didn't exist mm-hmm. but it wasn't as easy to put music on itunes or, or these other things so y- you would have to if paid the one company that distributes that music to iTunes at that, mm-hmm. that point. A lot of it was CD sales, so, but you had to buy in bulk. Yeah. So, so like you can't buy less than 1,000 CDs, and I'm this 16-year-old kid like, mm-hmm. wow, am I, is there 1,000 people that want to hear about me like as a, a grumpy 16-year-old? Like, yeah. I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> so there's, like, there's that, and you just buy like thousands of CDs at a time and sell them out of the back of your car. That's awesome. Yeah. Transitioning into the business side of it, becoming a, a a music lawyer, if you will. Yeah. Like, did you did you feel like you were kind of turning your back on like the dream, or like, what? What was that feeling? Absolutely. I think about this all the time. Like, when I made the decision to switch from being a musician to being a music lawyer, I felt like there was like a death, right? Like there was a part of me that I was quitting on and giving up on because from age 10 to 27, that was 100% my full-time dream. And that's mm-hmm. what I was going to do. And it was really hard to to say like, I'm going to put that down now. Yeah. I'm going I'm to move on to something else. So my compromise to myself was if I can't be in the music industry as the artist, then I want to be in this business that I love protecting artists. When it comes to like places like TikTok and Instagram, especially TikTok, a lot of artists are like getting discovered, I guess, if that's a thing anymore. Like they get discovered on TikTok. Yeah. I, I kind of think about recently, like with Oliver Anthony, I don't know if you followed that whole thing. Like he, he like blew up on the internet sure. and then it's like he's getting offered contracts. It's very, it's very real. Yeah, there was, there was, TikTok has replaced kind of the natural previous way of discovering where like somebody sent you a, a cassette or a mm-hmm. CD in the mail and, or somebody's cousin is in a band and they're really good. TikTok is the ultimate, like anybody from anywhere can come out of obscurity and gain a fan base. Mm-hmm. And it's great because it's, it's a great, it's a great, uh, democratizes the music industry. Yeah. But there's also um, some downfalls to it, you know, that I talked to my friends from when I was performing that are still out there touring and stuff like that. And they see, they jump on some of these tours with mm-hmm. TikTok artists and it doesn't always go well. You know, yeah. there, there's like, there's something to be said for 
kind of getting the shit kicked out of you playing the bar show with zero people in the crowd and kind mm-hmm. of building your chops, right? And playing, yeah. getting that 10,000 hours. If you have a video, you blow up and now you're put on these tours, but you haven't, you don't, never been on stage before. You don't have right. that stage presence. You might be really popular. A lot of people might come out to the show, but the show might be terrible. Uh-huh. So that's one thing that, that I've been hearing a lot about. I haven't witnessed it firsthand, but it's kind of like what's going on with, um, you follow this whole thing with Matt Reif, the, the TikTok. Absolutely. You know, <laughs> comedian. I've been watching this fall apart. Yeah. It, and it, he's, he's trying to save it. it, yeah. it it's kind of the same exact thing. He, he blew up really fast with um, really short, really curated, snippy, like great clips mm-hmm. of him doing this kind of crowd work. It was crowd work. Yeah. He started the crowd work trend, right? He, he started yeah. the crowd work and he was really, he was really good at it. And it was a lot of these small kind of comedy clubs where he was just kind of going at it with, with mm-hmm. people. He blows up and he's doing, he's doing these shows, but he doesn't necessarily have the material to right. put a good comedy special together. He's great with crowd work, but you're playing a room of a couple thousand people. You can't really work the crowd the same, Correct. the same way. And then there was also some stuff, of course, with like is uh, the content that he was putting into that special. It, he was mostly, um, mostly followed by female fans. Right. And there's a, you got to check like who, who supports you and who likes you. Yeah. You don't want to alienate your target audience. Exactly. Like whether or not that's the, like that's, that's one of those things. And, and I think this, this probably connects with music a lot is you don't get to choose your audience. No. Like you can, you can try to make content and like try to like attract the people that you want to attract, but you don't choose who follows you. It's just like, you don't choose what song you say, you got a 10 songs on an album. You don't get to choose which song is going to blow up. Or if you're making content, you don't get to choose which video gets the most views. And it's usually the one that you don't think is right. your best one that resonates with people. So you can't really guess any of this stuff. But when it happens, you got to listen to the data and, and lean into it. Yeah. It's like if it had, I don't want to dive too much into Matt Reif and his comedy, but like had, had he put out a special that was entirely crowd work in these like gritty clubs, it probably would have done really, really well. Of course. But that's not what he did. Yeah, that's what, that's what it, that was his bread and butter. And even if, okay, it, it was Netflix. He could have done anything. Like think about um, David Blaine has a Netflix special, right? But it's okay. not him necessarily in, you know, Caesar's Palace playing this thing. He's like going into like Harrison Ford's kitchen and doing something. Okay. You, you can, he, they could have built that into a situation where he was just in these, these small clubs. And right. And it was cut up really well and really cool. And they just picked... A hundred of the best moments. Mm-hmm. They didn't do that. <laughs> and and, and uh, the rest is history, as they say. Yeah. It's, it's, it's really crazy how quickly someone like that who explosively rose to the top can, can have a downfall. Well, that's the problem. I think that's, uh, you know, as we connect it back to music, that's one of the downsides I see to the tiktokification of music if you will uh-huh. right because people can rise really fast and they can fall just, just, as, just fast. as fast but yeah. if you've if you've worked on it if you've like gone and you've done it you've laid that foundation brick by brick mm-hmm. you know barring some some big thing mm-hmm. where you, you you deserve to be canceled you know you're gonna have a more sustainable career that's gonna last you for years and years mm-hmm. I've worked with musicians in the past and like their, their thing is like, always like, like I'm not making money from this. <laughs> it's like, true. and it's like uh, some of the things I've seen, like ones that I've kept in touch with do is like, they'll share like, here's how much like, cause it's Spotify rap season. Here's how much I made on Spotify with all of you listening to my music. And it's like, like nothing. It's, so, cr- it's crazy. So why, why, why is, why is this the system that we're stuck with now? Okay. Well, I am just going to say that we, the system has never been great. 
okay. in, the, in the music industry. There's been more money that's been made because there were sales and people would go to Walmart and pay $20 for a CD. And, okay. and, and if you've got that, you know, now people don't shell out $20 for one artist. They might shell out 10 bucks a month for a subscription to listen to unlimited artists. So the mm. amount of money is, is less. But really, what we have, the deals have always been bad. Okay. The deals have always supported the companies that promote and produce and release the music. So back in the day, like heyday of like Garth Brooks and Michael Jackson, when they're selling tens, hundreds of millions of albums, they are getting less of a cut because that's what the old deals were. You'd get 10, 15, 20% mm-hmm. of the MSRP after all your expenses were recouped. Now, artists are getting up to 50%. Okay. But the pie is so much smaller because the revenue is smaller. You're not selling that $20 CD. You're getting 15% of what Spotify made that month is being paid out to the creators. Okay. And what that breaks down to is about 0.004 cents per stream. Wow. And to put it in perspective of like how something might go gold, like certified gold. Um, in the traditional sense, that's 500 units that you have to, 500,000 units that you have to sell to go gold. Okay. A million to go platinum. This is like the gold record. This is the gold record. 500,000 okay. sales. Okay. There's now, because people don't buy as much money, there's actually a conversion. The RIAA who certifies these different records will say, we will give you a stream equivalent of a gold record. If you have X amount of streams, okay. you can get a gold record. They say that 1,500 streams equals the sale of one album. Okay. So that means you would need... An, in, in a, in and that's the old, a stream of the entire album, not just one song? Well, if you want... If they, they give you 10. So if it could either be you know one 10-song album or 10 listens of one single. Okay. So you can have an album that goes gold. You could have a single that goes gold. Let's say it's a single, right? So back in the day, if you wanted your single to go gold, you sell 500 units of that. You sell 500 cassettes, 500 CDs, 500 digital downloads. Congratulations, you're certified gold. Mm-hmm. Let's take sales out of the equation altogether. We're just trying to get there with streams. Under that math, it's going to take 75 million streams to get what? your gold record. So what's easier to get, 500,000 or 75 million? You know? That's crazy. So that's where the math breaks down because there's so little money that is going back to the artists. Is this why Taylor Swift puts out like five different variations of an album? Like, oh, if you buy the purple one, you get two different songs or something yes like yes and no taylor swift is a genius okay <laughs> and and part of it is like fan just servicing the fans give the fans what they want feed them mm-hmm. feed them often you know and, and they'll they'll eat because they love everything they're putting out there um the other thing is you know you, she doesn't know what's going to resonate with people so some people might want that deluxe album. Some people might just want that single. Okay. But, but the most important part about it is because she got screwed over by her former manager, Scooter Braun. You know about any of the drama? I, so I, I've watched the music videos. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm familiar slightly with this. What, wasn't he also the manager of Justin Bieber? Yeah, he was the guy who discovered Justin Bieber. He was a, his origin, he's still with, he's st- I believe he's still with him. Though Scooter Braun, in the last year or so, a bunch of people have dropped him as okay. their manager. So things are not going well for the Scooter Braun team. But... Yeah, he first discovers Bieber. Bieber blows up. At this point, like there's this trajectory where both Taylor and and uh, Justin are kind of on the same level as far as like acts, like okay. internationally, worldwide. This is before, this is way before eras and stuff like that. Like 
Justin was just as successful as Taylor. And so they're working together with uh, Scooter Braun and they're, and they're supporting each other on each other's tours. Mm-hmm. She's opening up for him. He's opening up for her. Scooter Braun's her manager. And under her uh, original record label deal that she signed when she was 15 years old, she had five albums. Okay. I, I, I could be wrong. It could be four. It could be six. But she had a, a body of work that she made with her original record deal. So she's committed to making those five before her deal can be like renegotiated or yeah, something. Or, like or that. she's out, or, or okay. yeah, she can go to some other label. She can kind of trade in on on the success that she's had, and somebody else can pay her what she's worth because mm-hmm. she's now got to that place where a lot of people want to work with her. Okay. So she's she's released all these different albums, and she doesn't own the masters under the traditional record label deal. The, the label is going to own the sound recordings. You, as the songwriter, Taylor Swift, as a songwriter, owns the copyright to these, the music and the lyrics, but that actual piece of recorded music is going to stay with the label. Okay. This is where... This is where this is where This is where I didn't understand what was going on. Okay. <laughs> okay. So she, she owns the, that music cop, um, composition, composition copyright, which is your... She music. owns the lyrics and all that stuff. All, all that stuff. She wrote the song and whoever else she co-wrote with, but she owns the songwriting part of it. The label owns that master sound recording. Okay. At some point, there is this... When her deal is just about at its end, there are talks about selling those masters potentially back to Taylor Swift because okay. now she has made enough money where she can actually buy them out of, mm-hmm. of those rights and they'll take it because it'll be a, a pretty good payday for them. Okay. But she doesn't get offered that opportunity. Instead, her manager, Scooter Braun, works out this backdoor deal with a label and buys them right from under her. Okay. And he's her manager. Right. Okay. This I all right. This is why I didn't understand why she hated Scooter Brown. So right. Much. So now he, I get he it. buys all of her music away from her. She doesn't even have the right of first refusal. She doesn't have the opportunity to do that. Okay. And he's her manager who is charged with looking out for her best interest. And he makes this deal to benefit himself. Wow. So now he owns those. He owns those master recordings. But what he doesn't own is the music and the lyrics, the, the song composition. Okay. So what does she do? She makes new recordings, Taylor's version, because she can, because it's her song. So mm-hmm. she records essentially sound-alikes of Scooters. She tells all her fans what's going on. This asshole stole all my mm-hmm. music right from under me. I'm going to make this new music that's going to devalue what he has mm-hmm. and people are only going to want to buy my version because they love okay. and they support me. And so she's recorded now uh, a handful of this year. I think she just re-recorded her fourth yeah. re-record album. Yeah. And so when he bought that, he thought this is going to be like years and years. It's going to be a wonderful asset. It's going to keep making money, mm-hmm. but everybody, even TV shows when they license Taylor's music, they're licensing her version. Taylor's version. Wow. So don't be a scumbag. <laughs> that's, that's the takeaway. And, and he really tried to, you know, to to take that from her. And she didn't even have the the first opportunity to, to buy it. It's bizarre to me. And it's changed, but it's changing the industry because you could do that. You could re-record. Okay. And a lot of contracts would say that you can't re-record for a certain number of years, but it was very short. It was something like you can't re-record two years after this contract's up. Okay. Maybe, maybe five years after this contract's up. But now labels are like, we don't want what Taylor did. We don't want other artists to do what Taylor did and basically take away our future investment. So they're trying to put in 15, 20, 30 year re-record restrictions. Wow. And uh, there's a lot of pushback, obviously, from, from music lawyers and musicians. But the music does sound different. Like the new, the Taylor's version. Yeah. Like, she doesn't sound the same singing our song she did when she was, like, you know, 16 or whatever. Sure, and I think, I think some of it is intentional. I think some of it is to keep 
the fan engaged and interested because there's nuances to it. Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't think she's trying to do like note for note recreation right. of everything, but she's trying to keep it enough because the fans that she built who love that music want that. Uh-huh. But I think she's really, she's really leaning into the fact that she's built so much trust with her fans that they want to buy this and they want to support her. When it comes to contracts, uh, what what is your role in that and how do you how do you help people stay protected absolutely well one of the the things is there's a real misconception of when entertainment music lawyers get involved in the process and part of it is to do with this book called all you need to know about the music business Ooh. have you heard of this book? i have not okay. but i i'm familiar with books like this, this is like all this you is need like, to know about whatever this is like yeah. the bible of like you want to be in the music business get this book okay so when it was written it was the first edition came out in the 80s this guy still still practicing don passman awesome entertainment lawyer he's like he's like the godfather of of entertainment law but both from uh where the industry was at when he first wrote this book and this being a book that he wrote to kind of be a a sales pitch for his services Mm -hmm. he says in that book that you need to hire a lawyer because a lawyer is going to go out there and is going to go get you those deals. Mm-hmm. He's going to pitch you and all this stuff. And in the eighties and nineties, that was kind of true. You know, like you would, you would walk down to Sony and you have your buddy and Hey, I've got this kid and here's his mixtape. And there might be a deal that works out. That doesn't happen at all now because we're in this age of, of, uh, data analytics and they mm-hmm. it's way more than just do i like this person do i like their music do i believe in it it's like they need to forecast profits they, they they've got to essentially build an audience themselves exactly yeah okay. so they, they need to know that this is going to make money as opposed to i believe in this artist i will invest in them for the next five years to help them build a career okay so, so that was that was one part of it but the other thing was practically he was building himself his book of business. And if he's going to write a book about everything you need to know about the music business, he's also going to say, and you need to hire a lawyer because they they might even get you a deal. Right. And so you know, people are calling him. So I get calls every day and they say, Hey, can you send, can you send my song to the executive of Sony? I'm like, sure. Like, cause I just have the CEO of Sony's like in my, you know, speed yeah. dial. But where we get involved is when you've been offered that deal. Okay. You know, you, you get a call, somebody wants to work with you, they've, they've put together this proposal, and they say, here's, this, here's the Word document of this. Have a lawyer look at it. That's what they mm-hmm. call us. We go through it and um, go from there. How does one develop a, like a clientele for something like that? All pretty much all word of mouth. You know, okay. you, you help. For me, coming from the music background, a lot of my clients are my peers in the, in the music business. Mm-hmm. Friends that I wrote songs with or, you know, studios that I recorded at. That's kind of where it started. And then when something happened or if, if somebody needed a music lawyer, oh, I know Ryan. You know, mm-hmm. Ryan's a good guy. And as it turns out, it resonates with people that, here's a musician who's also a lawyer that can speak to all this because lawyers kind of have this bad reputation of being these like, you know, money grubbing, mm-hmm. like heartless people that are just suits and they don't understand. But right. if you can actually speak their language and let them know you've been there, mm-hmm. uh, it really helps. And now you went to, you went to like law school after you studied all this stuff, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Well, what what did you learn in law school that you did not learn in the the, the undergrad uh, for the for the music part of things? Yeah. Well, there's was, there was there were some. I mean, I went to law school in Nashville at Belmont University, and that's right across the street from Music Row. So, like okay. all the big things that happen in Nashville music happen right across the street. And that was a pretty good, like, hands-on experience of kind of how the industry works. Like, mm-hmm. all your major publishers were there. Some of the most iconic recording studios were there. That was even the access to all that, which you usually don't get. That was invaluable. But 
you know, taking it a step further, in undergrad, you learn very base level concepts. You understand mm-hmm. what a copyright is, you know, and okay. how, how long it might last. And, you know, be careful for those contracts. They can be tricky. But in law school, you learn about, you put some real meat on the bone. You know, in contracts, you take contracts class and you need to know what elements create an enforceable contract. And if those don't exist, then you don't even have a deal. An enforceable, enforceable contract. So you're saying there's contracts that are just worthless pieces of paper? Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. If, and, and like, you know, people will send me something that they, they're really proud. They're like, I found this on the internet or I did this myself. And if they don't have the, the magic ingredients, that's not a real contract. And I'll, is there three of them? Okay. Okay. Off- I'm listening now. Yeah. I'm in. Okay. I'm, I'm invested now. If you want to have an enforceable, valid contract, there's an offer. Okay. There's an acceptance of that offer, and there's some mutual consideration, some exchange of value. Okay. Simplest thing is that, you know, I offer to buy your car for $5,000. Okay. You say, yes, I accept that. That's the acceptance. And the exchange of the money and the car is the consideration. Okay. So that's, you know, that's how it looks on the most simple of terms. So, so let's say, let's say we sell somebody a video, okay. And they, they sign the paper. They're, they're going to, they're going to do this video. Uh, We shoot the video. They haven't paid us. We shoot the video. There has not been any exchange of funds. You don't need the exchange of funds. The promise to pay is, enough. is, is good enough. Is, okay. And the services that you provide on the, on the other end is, is good enough to support it. But it's got to be something. It can't just be, you know, hey, Denver, like, I think you're such a great guy. I want to give you $10,000. Okay. You know. I appreciate that. that. <laughs> that's great, right? <laughs> that's, not va- that's not a valid contract because, okay. like, there is no mutual, there's no offer. There's no acceptance. It's really just me suggesting a potential gift. Okay. Right. And there's no, there's no value exchange in, in consideration of, of me giving you 10000 but, but if you were to say, hey, I think you're a great musician. I want to give you $10,000 in exchange. You make two albums for me. There you go. Th- then that's a contract. There you go. Okay. All right. That makes sense. Wow. You learn something new every day. So that that's that's what law school that's what law school taught me is those you know really the fundamentals of of what what a deal looks like. But then on the contract on the copyright side of things, we got really really deep into all the horror stories of what can and cannot happen if you mm-hmm. create a work. And uh, and there's also a whole bunch of uh, First Amendment stuff with entertainment and. I mean, it's, it's a lot. Like, there's 12. When you, when you go to law school, you've got three years of, of school. There's 12 subjects that are ultimately going to be on the bar exam. Mm-hmm. And so that means there's 12 core classes throughout those three years that you have to know to a high enough level that if they ask about it on the bar exam, you've got to be somewhat of an expert Mm -hmm. on. So that can be contract, that can be family law, that can be wills and trusts, that could be constitutional law, whatever. Mm -hmm. And you got to know all of it to get your entrance ticket to be a lawyer. In a room of ideas. Right. So, so like I've, I've been in like pitch meetings before for commercials and I've been like, Hey, here's, here's my take. Okay, we're mm-hmm. gonna we're, we're gonna do this commercial like this, and laid out like a very detailed vision of like what this would look like, and uh, type up a little treatment, send that over after the meeting, and then next thing I know, they've gone and made this commercial with another company. In a room of ideas. Yep. Does. Does anyone, does everyone own the idea in the room of ideas or does the idea not to belong any, to anybody because there was no execution? Uh, no. So under the Copyright Act, a copyright is created automatically 
the second you put um, a work in a tangible means of expression, which okay. what, what that means is I put my idea pen to paper and I write out something. Okay. I now automatically have a copyright. We film this. Mm-hmm. There's a, there's a recording happening okay. from the, from the creation. The second that's being recorded, there's a copyright that's, that's okay. being created. Now in a room of ideas, if you mean there's like other people in the room and it's more collaborative, it can get really messy. Right. Because who is, who has contributed? What is the intent of the parties? Absent an agreement that says this, everybody agrees in writing that I, Denver, came up with the best idea ever and I own 100% of this. If you don't have that, you're opening yourself up for anybody in the room is arguably a equal co-owner of something. But then you also have this other part of copyright idea uh, of copyright law, which is idea versus expression. Okay. Ideas are not protected under copyright law. The expression of the idea is protected. So the idea being, you know, like Romeo and Juliet, right? Mm -hmm. Boy meets girl. They fall in love. Tragedy ensues. That's kind of the idea, right? Mm -hmm. And how many other stories, movies, whatever, have been based on that general basic premise, like mm-hmm. Titanic, you know, like just right. everything is kind of based on that. So you can't own that baseline idea because that isn't, everybody owns that, right? Okay. But if you now put something behind that, if you put some expression and some original thought and authorship behind it, you give these characters a personality, you give them a, a mission, you give okay. them you know, a whole storyline follow. Now you've created enough to, to have uh, a copyright, to have a copyright. Okay. Wow. Here's, here's, here's a a tangent question thought. Okay. So like we make videos for clients, right? We develop a concept. Let's say, let's say we were making videos for you Mm -hmm. and we, we make a series uh, that's, going to be called, I don't know, Rants from Ryan, okay? And we sit down and we shoot Rants from Ryan, okay? But we brought this idea to the table, Rants from Ryan. Right. Do we own, as a company, do we own Rants from Ryan? Or because you creatively expressed it on camera, are you the owner of Rants from Ryan? It can get really get really messy. So, I mean, if it's just that you brought the idea Right, you say, "Hey, I've got this idea. We can do this like thing. It's called Rants for Ryan." You set up the camera, like Ryan, like just start ranting. Yeah, and like I start ranting. <laughs> okay. That's like that's what I'm. It's my rants. Like I'm, I'm doing it. But if you like, if you script out, like, oh, this would be great. You know, we'll do this. We'll do this. Here's like a whole month's worth of content. Uh-huh. You know, here's like some shot lists. Here's some like you know b-roll clips that we could throw in there then that starts looking a lot more like something you created okay now if i'm hiring you we might have a contract that says in exchange for me paying for you for your services Mm -hmm. i'm going to be hiring you as a work for hire i'm going to hold the copyrights to uh rants for ryan in exchange for some money because otherwise if there is no contract everybody that kind of collaborates He's a co-owner. Okay. Wow. This is all things I need to know. Yeah. So I'm starting to think <laughs> you invited me here for some, some free legal advice <laughs> and I'm not mad about it. <laughs> no, I mean, it's a, it's a, uh, I'm, I'm here for it, <laughs> but it's, it's true. It's like, these are all really practical things that I'm sure you encounter every single day, just like any other creative uh-huh. professional. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. I think the, the contracts are a thing that, Like I'm in a lot of like, uh, what do you call them? Like forums and stuff, like Facebook groups of creatives, and they'll there. It never fails. There's someone that has a problem with something, and then there'll be someone in the comments. Did you have a contract? Like, well, no. 
And it's like everything falls apart. It's like I didn't get paid or like uh, I accidentally deleted all the footage or I, you know, any of these things can happen. And it all seems to fall in the contract of like, like that's how people are protected. Definitely. Well, it's, it's not just how they're protected, but it's how you do something about it Mm -hmm. if shit hits the fan. You is know. that where you come in though? Yeah. Well, that's, that's where I come in both from a planning side of things. Say if, if, if you bring in a entertainment lawyer to draft your contract, we also mm-hmm. do litigation. So we go to court. We love going to court. Oh, really? Yeah. So, so, so some lawyers, they just do contracts. Some lawyers, they just go to court. We're kind of oh, like okay. the Swiss army knife. We'll do, we'll do it all. And like, we, we enjoy it. But on the, on the planning side of thing, if you don't have a contract in place, then you're going to have an uphill battle trying to do, some, do something about it because he said, she said, what was the actual agreement? Okay. What were the promises? And it's really, you're putting faith into 12 people in a jury who's more believable, you or that other person. Okay. But if you have a contract that says, I'm going to do X, Y, and Z, the other side's going to do these things in exchange for money, we can clearly see if those things were done or not. Okay. And each one of those can lead to like some legal remedies Mm -hmm. and we can actually get evidence behind that. You know, you were supposed to deliver this song sound recording to us mixed and mastered by December 1st. Mm -hmm. Here's a Dropbox, Dropbox link where it came January 15th. Okay. Yeah, that's so, proof, so you violate the that's, contract that's by proof doing of it. that's proof of a, a breach. Or, you know, even better for for somebody in that type of situation, you, you never you don't have the evidence. They never sent it. You just don't have it. Mm. So yeah, you, you're gonna the the written contract is always gonna be your best protection because it sets from the beginning what everybody's intentions and expectations were. Otherwise. Mm-hmm you're just opening yourself up to, well, I didn't really remember it that way. You know, I, you, you said you wanted me to do that, but I actually think we were supposed to do it this way or whatever. Mm-hmm. It makes it much, much harder. Myself as a creative person, uh, if I had to put myself in the shoes of a musician, it's like, like I, don't, I, I don't know that I would want to deal with something as daunting as a, as a contract. Well, that's why you hire a lawyer, <laughs> you know, like you don't have to like contracts to use them and make that part of like good business practices. Okay. You know, you, you can think that they're like icky and you know, you don't quite understand everything they say and you might think that they're unnecessary, mm-hmm. but when something bad happens, you're going to be super grateful that you had that written contract. Yeah. Now with, with the changes, in the scenery of music, especially like with artificial intelligence, or AI, voice generation. We use a lot of like voice generation stuff here in the office to like fix video edits. Like if somebody didn't say something exactly right, we just type it in and clone their voice and, yeah. and it's, it's fixed. Um, with situations like that and you have artists that are signing contracts today, are they... Are they signing away their voice? You want to be very careful about what that contract says, especially now. But, you know, AI, generative AI, wasn't on anybody's radar a year ago. Mm -hmm. You know, nobody really knew what ChatGPT was. It wasn't until 3 and 3.5 came out that anyone really was started paying attention. And all these other video tools and, and... generative AI images, it came out like fast. Yeah. And so there's a lot of contracts, of course, that predate generative AI. We couldn't even have imagined that this was going to happen. And mm. just even how quickly it's developing, how can you write something that's going to be all-inclusive of all the potential future uses? But let's look at the old contracts, mm especially in um, what, what was happening with the writer strike, the SAG after strike, stuff like that. And that the AI became a big battleground of those negotiations. 
was there was old contracts as far as for actors that mm-hmm. gave the film studios certain simulation rights. Not unlike what you said with if somebody, maybe the audio is bad or they say something, you want to overdub some line. Old contracts said you've got, you've got the right to simulate their performance, whether it's, you know, you have a stand-in or somebody and you're shooting the back of their head, but they, the actor couldn't get back. Okay. Couldn't get back to the scene or you want to change one line or you've got this original version, but it's got swears in it and you, now you want to sell it to TBS and you've got to clean it up. Like you got to be able to edit it, whether you're hiring somebody that sounds like them or whatever. So these old contracts had plenty of things in there that said you've got certain likeness and certain uh, simulation rights. Arguably, that applied to AI, but nobody even knew about it. Right, because that wasn't on anyone's radar. So now, in, in the acting world, in the music world, all that, the, that area, which was a very common, often overlooked, it's not a big battleground in a contract. You know, there's, there's certain things that you're going to fight on. You know, how long is this going to last? How much money am I going to get paid? Whatever. This was something that was like, oh, yeah, it's in there. Mm-hmm. Fine. It's in every contract. Move on. But now you want to be really careful of what those name, image, likeness rights are that you're giving to the company. In the music world, they'll say that you've got a certain, that you license to them your name, image, and likeness to promote your music. You know, they, mm-hmm. they can't, you're putting out, you know, Denver's Beats, right? You're, that's your that's, that's something I want to draw. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's like Denver's Beats. They need to be able to use your artist name to promote it. Because if they can't, then they've just got this music. And right. who is it? I don't know. So, I mean, they need that. They need to be able to have a picture of you to promote it as well. And, and, and really put together this package to market it and sell to people. That's what that traditionally has meant in the world of... AI, those name image likeness could also be stretched to um, recreations of your image. Yeah, like they just take voice. my face and then they're like, oh yeah, he's, you know, advertising for, I don't know, NASCAR or something. Totally, totally. Yeah. Or, or, or something that, you know, even worse, like, you know, you're in like some porn or something <laughs> like that. Like, you know, <laughs> something that like you, that would absolutely be objectionable that you are giving away and, you know, what are the protections on your consent to that mm-hmm. use and what are your protections to additional compensa- compensation for that use? Okay. So right now where it's happening is like YouTube has come out with like some tools where like you can make, make new songs with like Charlie Puth's voice. Yeah. And he has licensed his voice and you can like sing into your like iPhone and you can sing something and I'll run it, and then I'll, like, make it into his, like, super smooth, super clean, like, Charlie Puth voice. That's weird, right? <laughs> right? But he already had, like, an AI-sounding voice. Yeah, he kind of did. <laughs> it's weird, but he gave both his consent to it, and he's getting paid for it. So I have no problem with that if the person who's being reproduced, replicated, mm-hmm. consents to it and is compensated. It's the situation where somebody's likeness and their voice is basically being stolen from them mm-hmm. where we got big issues. That happened with, um, you hear about that song that was blew up over the summer. It was a, a fake Drake in the weekend song. I, I haven't heard this. No. Okay. There was a song called Heart on My Sleeve. And it was, it was an actual musician. I think his name was uh, fittingly Anonymous. Was his was his name? Oh no! Okay. No, Ghostwriter. Sorry, Ghostwriter. Ghostwriter was his name. I like that. And he releases a song, and he he wrote the actual song. He he wrote the lyrics. He performed it, sang it, but then he ran it through a filter so that like Drake was singing the verses, and the weekend was singing the choruses. Wow! And the song takes off like on Spotify, YouTube, all these places. I think it was over 20 million streams wow. in the course of two weeks. And like I told you, like 75 million streams equals a gold record. So he, in like two weeks, he was 
well on his way to getting a gold record. The problem, wow. the problem was he didn't have any of the permissions to use those voices. Mm-hmm. So Universal Music and, and whoever else owns the rights pulled the plug on that song. Does he get sued in a situation like that? I'm sure. I'm sure he will. <laughs> it's because just not happened yet. It, yeah, he he. The song immediately gets taken down, but it doesn't get taken down on a copyright standpoint because he owns the copyright. Like he okay. he wrote the song, he recorded the song. It's his, but he's misappropriated somebody else's voice and their likeness. So you're going to see a lot of more overlap between like IP and copyright uh-huh. and somebody's likeness. If you were speaking to yourself, your younger self, who wants to be a musician, but your, your parents are like, hey, what's, what's plan B? Yeah. Uh, what, what would you say to a person who's possibly in those shoes today? There's two things. I would say there are artists out there that, think that learning about the business is too nerdy, that they don't need to learn these different things. Problem with that is there are so many avoidable pitfalls. Mm-hmm. You know, there's, there's resources out there with Instagram and TikTok and stuff. There's never been more information on how you can avoid being screwed like artists of the past have been screwed. Like, mm-hmm. So you shouldn't, you shouldn't make the same mistake that somebody else has very publicly made. That's one thing. Just stay educated. You know, it's, it's really going to make a difference in your career. One bad contract can be the end of your career before it even really gets started. Mm-hmm. The other thing I'd say is the importance of community. Whatever you do, don't feel like you have to do it alone. Mm-hmm. Everything that's worth doing is better with a team around you. You know, even the, the triumphs of success it's better when you've got your buddies around you doing mm-hmm. it and it's going to be a lot easier. So don't feel like you've got to be the songwriter, the music video editor, the publicist, the lawyer, all the different things. Build a big a, a support team around you that's going to build you up. Thanks for listening to the Show Business Podcast. Show Business is produced by Enjoy New Media out of Duluth, Georgia. If you like this podcast, be sure to rate and review it.